Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. But you turn with me to Numbers 27, we'll begin in verse 12. So we consider the great leadership transition passage of Moses and Joshua. And part of my message is taken from my doctoral dissertation uh, that's related heavily on this subject. And uh, in my view, some of the most sobering lines in all of Scripture are when God says to Joshua at the beginning of the book of Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Moses had been the leader, the only leader Israel had known for 40 years, and now he was gone. If ever there was a crisis transition of leadership, this was it. Moses was the man who'd stood up to Pharaoh, who proclaimed the word of the Lord, who facilitated the mighty acts of God to bring the greatest nation in the world at that time to its knees under the oppression of the ten plagues. And he stood in Yahweh's holy presence to bring forth a Decalogue inscribed by the very finger of God. In our passage, Moses' term of leadership is coming to an end, ready to pass the baton on to the next shepherd of Israel, Joshua, the young, courageous spy, and Moses', Moses right-hand man is the chosen successor. In our passage, we see once again that the Lord is faithful to provide leadership for His people and gives us direction in His Word how we might identify and cultivate biblical leadership in Christ's church. Please follow as I read Numbers 27, beginning in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall also be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy as the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. And the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. 
and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. This is God's word. Our gracious God and Father, we would pray this evening that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Moses, along with David and perhaps a few others in the Old Testament, are the archetypical leaders of God's people. And if ever a man learned leadership under fire, it was Moses. Perhaps more than any other figure in the Old Testament, Moses' life foreshadows the life of Christ. His life being threatened from birth until he leads the people of Israel out of slavery by the mighty hand of God. But unlike Jesus, Moses was flawed. The presumptuous, zealous young man sought to free his people, impulsively taking the life of an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating one of his fellow Hebrew slaves. His life under the threat of an enraged Pharaoh led Moses to flee into the wild where he tended sheep for 40 years. And it was there that the Lord called Moses out of a burning bush. He was no longer a young warrior and had been away from the sophisticated culture of Egyptian society for an entire generation. In his argument with God, Moses tries to excuse himself from leadership on the basis that he had some kind of speech impediment. It was obvious that Moses lacked confidence to fulfill the role that God had prepared for him. But eventually Moses would yield and stood before the elders of Israel and before Pharaoh and his court in the name of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses would lead not by might or eloquence or wit or cunning, but in humble submission to the will of God Almighty, who had ordained all of these things to demonstrate his power, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Moses' leadership was tested over and over again. But as we come to this transition point, I see we identify three vital ways, three vital principles that characterize godly biblical leadership. Moses leaves his people a legacy of personal humility, the power of delegation, and a passion for the glory of God. Moses' siblings are deceased, and God commands Moses to go up Mount Abarim, from which he will be able to view the land, see the promised land, but he will not be permitted to step on it as punishment for his disobedience to where he failed to uphold the Lord as holy in the sight of all Israel. You may recall, back in Exodus 17, Moses was commanded to strike the rock from which would flow water to quench the thirst of the grumbling 
people of Israel. And on that occasion, the text tells us that the Lord's holy presence stood on that rock. And so when Moses struck it with his staff, he was striking the holy presence of God, which was a powerful message of foreshadowing demonstrating that the Lord himself would bear the punishment for his people for their failure to keep his covenant. And Jesus would ultimately take the death blow for our sin when he was crucified on a Roman cross. But then later, in Numbers chapter 20, when Israel once again lacked water at Meribah, God commanded Moses to speak to the rock, that water might flow from it to satisfy the people's thirst. But Moses, in his anger and his frustration at the ongoing grumbling of his people, takes his staff and strikes the rock, and from which God graciously brought forth water to quench the thirst of the people. But on that occasion, the Lord rebuked Moses. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I had given them. After decades and decades of leading God's people through trial and tribulation and hardship and difficulty, Moses will be forbidden from entering the land. It's worthy of us to pause to consider Moses' humility at this point. The Lord has just told him that he will die, that he will be gathered to his people. It's time for Moses to put his house in order to prepare for his final departure. And we can surmise that this was a welcome message as Moses was 120 years old, had been leading Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Moses humbly accepts the Lord's declaration and his punishment without a word. He does not grumble or complain or plead for God's mercy. Moses submits to God's will, to God's judgment, trusting himself to the holy, almighty will of God, who alone does what is right. And let's consider the road Moses had to take to gain and acquire this characteristic of humility. Among Moses' first test with the people was responding to their complaining and their grumbling over and over again. Having just seen the mighty acts of God, delivering them from the land of slavery, the house of bondage by the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and tossing horse and rider into the drowning seas, the people almost immediately began yielding to their fears, their lack of water, their poor food supply. At Marah, the people grumbled against Moses for water. Moses cried out to the Lord. 
And the Lord faithfully provided, showing Moses a log, which he threw into the water supply, turning the bitter water sweet and refreshing. As the trials continued, the people complained and exaggerated their memories of all the luxuries they enjoyed, all the leeks and the onions and all the, all the privileges they had back in Egypt. And then complained as the Lord gave Moses instructions regarding the manna, which had become the people's daily bread for many, many years. The Lord sent the people quail, to satisfy their craving for meat. And yet the people continued to grumble and complain and challenge Moses' leadership time and again. And perhaps one of the worst insults came when his own sister and brother took offense at his foreign, darker-skinned wife. And on that occasion in Numbers 12, the Scriptures ascribe a very rare quality to Moses. That's attributed to perhaps no other person in the Bible than the Lord Jesus himself. The text says, The man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And whether the Spirit led Moses to write that, compelled him against his will to write this assessment of him, or perhaps Joshua would later write this, or another editor This quality highlights the principle of humility that must characterize any godly leader in Christ's church. And on that occasion, there was no indication of Moses rebuking, rebuking his siblings. He was not defensive. He did not mount a counter-offensive against their attack. But rather, in humble submission, Moses let God be the judge. And the Lord does respond with a manifestation of his power and glory and rebukes Miriam in making absolutely clear that Moses was his appointed leader. God would again defend his man, his chosen leader, who trusted in him even when Korah and the other rabble-rousers rose up against Moses and Aaron. Your one test of leadership is when people praise you. Does it go to your head? But another test is when people criticize you. The principle of humility would dictate that true leadership gives praise to God for successes and humbly receives criticism, letting God be the final judge and arbiter. Now, there are times that critics in the church must be confronted, not to defend one's own honor, but to protect the people from error and deceit. But humility is the legacy that any departing pastor or leader in church or school organization. Humility is the legacy that a leader leaves to those whom have been entrusted to his care. And humility is that prize characteristic to look for in any worthy successor. A while ago, our church staff read 
a book by Patrick Lencioni called The Ideal Team Player. It's a wonderful book that begins with a parable, a story followed by a discussion of the business principles for, you know, for any business or organization to apply and offers us three ideal characteristics of the ideal leader or the ideal team player. And those three characteristics are humble, hungry, and smart. Very simple. And by hunger or hungry, Lencioni is speaking of uh, driven, drivenness and determination, someone who aspires to accomplish much. By smart, the author is speaking of people smarts, the, that ability to read other people, to listen, to communicate, to understand and resolve conflict. But the chief of those characteristics is to be humble. Humility can't be faked. Humility must be genuine when someone is aware of his or her own faults, limits, and takes ownership of them. And a test for humility is that ability to give credit away, to give it to others, to praise others, but to take full responsibility for failures, even if it's maybe those under you who are more directly to blame. The humble leader is not concerned with his or her own reputation, but ultimately with God's reputation. The next principle of textbook leadership transition is the power of delegation. Moses responds to the Lord in verse 15. The time is drawing close for his chapter of leadership, and he appeals to the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, to appoint a man to lead the people so that the people will not be left as sheep without a shepherd. We find a striking parallel here with the way Matthew describes Jesus, who when he saw the crowds had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Moses often frustrated overwhelmed, overburdened by the task of leadership, yet still loved the people. And he would not cast them to the wolves once he departed. He was determined to leave them in capable hands. And he clearly has Joshua in mind, but he yields to God to identify the man who would take up the role, the assumption of leadership over God's people. Another test of leadership is whether or not we can handle the weight of responsibilities entrusted upon us. The leader must have broad and wide shoulders to carry many responsibilities, but also must have the wisdom to know when to delegate. While Moses is holding court settling the disputes of the people. His father-in-law Jethro observes these things and offers wise counsel. He says, what you are doing is not good. 
For Moses and the people will merely wear themselves out, for this thing is too heavy. Moses was unable to bear this load alone. So he receives the wise counsel of his father-in-law to identify a number of elders to help carry the load, to address smaller cases of judgment and reserve the more difficult cases for himself as God's chief under-shepherd of the people. In verse 18, the Lord commands Moses to take Joshua, in whom was the Spirit of God, and lay his hands on him. Joshua was to stand before Eleazar the priest and before the entire congregation to be commissioned to be set apart for leadership, which is why we do the same. When we commission pastors and elders and deacons to shepherd the flock of Christ, this act affirms the character, the training, and the readiness of the men who are being called to serve in a role of leadership. In verse 20, Moses invests some of his authority upon Joshua, that the congregation would obey him and follow his lead. The authority granted to a trusted leader who serves in the fear of the Lord, one who must honor his commitment to the good and the well-being of the people. But we notice in this passage that Joshua is given a limited portion of the authority that was entrusted to Moses. Joshua would not be privileged with direct communications with the Lord. He will be instructed by the high priest who will use the Urim and the Thummim, the, this equipment of the high priest that was a, a sacred lot feature of the high priest role. And through this act, Joshua would know the will of God. David and kings in later years would, would rely upon the high priest to receive this communication and direction. So you see kind of a division of labor, a division of powers, a separation of powers of sorts to keep king and priest and prophet separate and humble before the Lord. Moses had a unique position, a Christ-like position of a, of a prophet, priest, and king of sorts for a rare time of transition until God established the leadership authority structure for his people. You know, pastors and other leaders are good at accumulating responsibilities. Many of us enjoy being the go-to man, the spiritual counselor, the one who is called upon to solve practical problems. But God did not intend the church of Christ to be a one-man show. The Lord intends his church to be governed by a plurality of elders of godly men who meet biblical qualifications of spirit-led leadership. You know, the ability to take charge and assume responsibility, but then also relinquish control is a challenging set of requirements for many under-shepherds of Christ's flock. 
the book of Kings is filled with numerous failed examples of kings who would not let go, who did not transition well, that often ended in bloodbaths, a terrible depiction of human depravity, of sin, oppression, and self-centered control. And in too many cases in churches, a retiring pastor may leave a church ill-equipped to function in his absence or failing to train leaders or leaving behind qualified people to continue on in their ministries. And sadly, sometimes pastors or leaders of organizations seem to have an unhealthy desire to be missed, to delight and somehow the church or the organization struggling without him. Any leader, any servant leader in Christ's church or in Christian community must die to that need to be needed. We are not indispensable. Healthy churches, healthy Christian organizations, healthy Christian homes are, dem- are demonstrated by a plurality of leaders. And the humble under-shepherd will not be intimidated by other competent contributors, advisors, people who are effective to help the ministry grow and expand and bear much fruit. I've been thinking about these things in recent weeks with the recent passing of two giants of our denomination, Tim Keller and Harry Reeder who went to be the Lord in recent weeks and just 24 hours apart, uh, back-to-back sad uh, departures of these two men. And if I know Harry Reeder, who was one of my professors at uh, my doctoral program, I have every confidence that Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham will be just fine and will carry on without Harry with a stock full of faithful men, leading, shepherding, guiding this congregation, sad as they must be, during a painful time, we'll find and identify a new senior pastor to lead this mother church where our denomination, the PCA, was born some 50 years ago. And perhaps due to his bout with thyroid cancer in in the year 2000, when Tim Keller was still in his 50s, he went on to ensure that Redeemer Presbyterian Church in downtown Manhattan, as well as the city-to-city church planting ministry that he began, was filled with capable leaders who could continue on after his departure, not knowing then how soon that would be. And the multi-campus approach to Redeemer's ministry in downtown Manhattan led to several congregations that are led by men who are capable to serve in that unique urban context in our nation's largest city. It would be 15 years later that Pastor Keller would step back as senior pastor, and just a few years before he was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer in May of 2020, which took his life recently after a three-year battle. Tim Keller, Harry Reeder, made much positive impact for the cause of Christ 
in the evangelical world and the uh, Reformed church world, they would be greatly missed. But they were men who multiplied themselves by pouring themselves into younger men who would take up the reins to go on to lead ministries that would bear much fruit. To pick a secular example, I think of Steve Jobs, a man who in many ways does not share the faith or the character of a Keller or a reader, but who in 2011, facing a diagnosis of cancer and realizing that, the, or facing the inevitable, that he would not be returning and would not continue on long as the CEO of Apple Computer, he began his transition. And in his biography, he's quoted as joking about how Apple had many rough transitions in the prior years. And he said, it's always been a drama like a third world country. And part of my goal has been to make Apple the world's best company. And having an orderly transition is key to that. And Steve Jobs became obsessed with a seamless transition not just to preserve his legacy, but to propel his company forward, to make impact on the world. And in his own way, even Steve Jobs was somewhat Christ-like, somewhat Pauline in his commitment that his followers, those who come after him, would do even greater things than him. That is the passion and the commitment to something glorious. And so we come to the final principle. We see in Moses a a passion for God's glory that not only sustained him as a leader, but passed on a vision of God honoring fruitful ministry to his successor and his followers after him. Moses followed his father-in-law's advice to anoint 70 elders who received the same spirit that he had been endowed with from the Lord. And some of those men began to acquire prophecy. And on one occasion, two men were prophesying, and it was was reported to Moses and Joshua. And Joshua responds, making an appeal to Moses to make them stop. And Moses replies, "'Are you jealous for my sake?' Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Joshua was jealous for Moses' honor position. But true pastoral leadership is not jealous for one's own honor. Moses was happy to share the gifts of God, the, the service of the Lord to others, because the glory was not his, but God's. Like the Apostle Paul, who was not jealous of fellow ministers who even criticized him and received honor from the churches. Moses desires that the glory of the Lord be magnified among the people. And it was that drive and that passion for God's glory that enabled Moses to shine in his finest moments, making intercession for the people when they were under the threat of God's holy judgment to be wiped out completely for their sin and rebellion. And on each occasion, 
Moses appeals to God and his glory and his reputation among the nations to refrain from wiping out the people, but to endure and to persevere and to show mercy that the people might make it safely into the promised land and fulfill God's vision and covenant promises. So we have these three core leadership principles from the legacy of Moses. Humility, delegation, and the glory of God. Would that all retiring leaders, all leaders in Christ Church and elsewhere, leave the same legacy that we've been blessed here at Westminster Church with beautiful, godly transitions over the years for which we are so blessed and so grateful from pastoral leadership, leadership on our sessions and our various ministries. What's remarkable in the story of Moses and Joshua is that their transition was so seamless and smooth that when you get to the book of Joshua, it's like the people don't grumble. They don't complain. That you see none of the ornery complaining and challenging of leadership that so characterized the people under Moses' leadership. In hindsight, it would seem that the slave mindset of the Exodus generation was given to mistrust and self-preservation, complaining and excessive fear that led to a lack of faith and rebellion. And that people, that whole generation was punished with 40 years of wilderness wanderings, all perishing in the wild without stepping into the promised land. But then the next generation comes along and is characterized by resilience and submission and being faithful to God's mission. Moses apparently bore the brunt of training the congregation to follow God-ordained leadership. He took the hits that paved the smooth path upon which Joshua would lead the people. And Joshua would enjoy much success after his lengthy preparation being commended and honored by Moses, his commitment to obey the Lord, his own competency and character, yet ultimately sustained by God's prevailing grace for him as a leader. Joshua's generation would go on to demonstrate great faithfulness, a great improvement upon their father's generation. But then judges would give us a report on the next generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A spirit of vigilance and faithfulness and submission gave way to entitlement, idolatry, and repeated failed leadership. It would seem that the principles that Joshua and his elders received from Moses during that transition did not pass on well to the following generation. And so this case exposes the great difficulty in preserving a leadership culture that effectively recruits, trains, and transmits a commitment to biblical faithfulness to succeeding generations of leaders. It's a humble commentary that we receive from God's Word 
And we are reminded here that every pastor is an interim. Every leader is temporary. We are all mortal. We age. We come to the end of our capacities. And transitions can be a great time of testing for any church or organization. We see many great leaders in the Old Testament. Moses and Joshua, Nehemiah, Joseph, and others who each in their own way demonstrate a a Christ-likeness in their leadership. But all died. All came to an end. And there is only one leader who is permanent, who needs no succession. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ, the one who followed upon the heels of John the Baptist, who entrusted a grand worldwide mission to 12 men still in training, who reigns now as we wait his glorious final return. Isaiah 9 says that the government will be upon his shoulders. He will rule with an iron scepter. He will bring the kingdoms of this world to an end. The leaders of this world, the leaders of our churches, will let us down, will disappoint, who will fail to live up to promises. But we have in the Lord Jesus Christ a leader we can trust, who we look forward to, whom we follow as we serve in his likeness until he ushers in that great and final age of righteousness, when we will have failed leadership no more, where abuse and corruption will be gone forever. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who defends the weak, who exalts the righteous, who brings the wicked down to the grave. Trust him. Follow him. Emulate him in faith with Christ-like character. Adopt his servant leader ways as God calls you and I to make impact upon this sin-stained world as we await the glorious redemption, the glorious renewal that is promised by our coming Redeemer and King. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who perfects every hope, every promise, every command, every law, every expectation we have for leadership. And we are grateful that you have entrusted and equipped your church to be a bright light and a witness of servant leadership before a watching world. Bless our church, our sister churches, and our presbytery and our denomination. Help us to lead the way, to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be glorified in all these things, we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you.
And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.